God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence hides a smiling face. These words from William Cooper in his song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. This has been a sobering season for our life as a church family. Romans 8, 28, sorry, 22 to 23, says that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. This has been a season of groaning as a church family. We have felt these groanings in piercing and life-altering ways in the midst of our gathering here. We have several brothers and sisters battling life-threatening cancer. We have friends whose health is so severe that it dictates daily what they can do or they can't do, whether they could gather with the people of God or not. We had a young mother right after delivering birth have to be in the hospital with severe sepsis. We have families who suffer the loss of babies in the womb. We have a sister with four young boys, seven to 11, on a ventilator at Baptist. Her future uncertain. The sufferings of this present age are unavoidable. They're keenly felt by all of us. And so now in the hour ahead, I want us to call us brothers and sisters to humble ourselves under the mighty God and to come for his, to his word to find affliction, or sorry, to find comfort in our affliction. Please pray with me. God of all comfort, please comfort us in our affliction right now through your word and through your son. Please be near to Amber and James, to Jaden, to Jordan, to Josiah, and to Judah. Have mercy on them. Give them the persevering faith in Job, who said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Only you can give that kind of faith. Please give it. We pray in hope and in confidence that you are true to your word and to every one of your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, suffering is common to all of humanity. Uh, no matter who you are or where you come from, uh, no matter the diversity represented in a single room, each and every one of us either has endured suffering or will endure suffering. And unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, every one of us will endure the suffering of death. We face physical suffering. We get sick with viruses. We break bones. We struggle with chronic illnesses that affect everyday life like diabetes, high blood pressure. We struggle with kidney disease, heart attacks, strokes, and cancers. 
We experience all kinds of physical suffering. The list could go on. And I can say from 10 years working in the ER that, that suffering and death is no respecter of persons and no respecter of age. It happens to the young and to the old equally. The reality is that we all will face suffering. We also face relational suffering. Most of us in this room have known the deep pain and anguish of having those that we dearly loved taken from this world. Sometimes, at what we, from our human perspective, would say was the most inopportune time, we've lost loved ones, brothers and sisters in their youth, sons and daughters in their youth, parents in their middle ages with children in the home. We've also experienced the relational suffering of broken relationships, absentee parents, harsh or, or passive spouses, defiant children in the home, or adult children outside the home whom we feel heart-wrenching, rending anxiety for because they are outside of Christ, and if they continue on the path that they are on, they are running straight for an eternity of judgment. What a great and piercing anguish our relational suffering is. And there are a hundred other types of suffering that are represented here in this room that we cannot speak to, each of them peculiarly painful in its own way. How are we as Christians to think about and respond to the suffering that we all experience in our lives, collectively and individually? And how are we to respond in a way that brings God the maximum glory that He, as the creator of the universe, the one sitting on the throne, deserves and is worthy of? Well, I want to address the issue of general suffering this morning, not just suffering incurred for the sake of the gospel or for the name of Christ. Uh, my objective is not to provide a theodicy or a philosophical explanation for uh, the relationship between the existing of pain and evil in the world and a holy and righteous and powerful uh, God. That's a serious question, and suffering often brings that question up in my, our minds. Uh, my goal is not to address it philosophically this morning. I want to address it pastorally. But I will say at least two things to address the problem of suffering. One that is that the problem of suffering is a problem for every worldview, and that Christianity provides the most satisfying, the Bible provides the most satisfying answer, in that it both identifies the problem in original sin, and it identifies the solution in the suffering Son of God who would substitute to himself in the place of his rebellious creatures. And then second, I would say to the problem of suffering, as Os Guinness once said, there is only one God who has had nails in his hand and who has suffered for his own creatures. Do not doubt the goodness of God, even in the midst of pain and suffering. There is no God like him. Well, my pastoral burden is to help all of us to learn how to suffer well to the glory of God this morning. If you're in the midst of suffering, I want to comfort you and to offer you help and hope from the hand of God through his very word. May we be able to sing in truth when peace like a river attendeth my way.
when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Turn with me to the book of Job. Uh, The book of Job is about midway through the Old Testament. If you turn to the middle of your Bible and then start to turn to the left, you will come to Job between Esther and Psalms. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us. So, brothers and sisters, as we come to the Lord's Word this morning, I want you to believe that the Lord has something for us this morning, for our good in the midst of our suffering. I'm going to break this sermon up into two parts. Uh, First will be the story of Job, and then second will be lessons from a righteous sufferer. The story of Job and the lessons from a righteous sufferer. This is going to be an overview sermon, which is a bit unusual for what we do and how we preach as a church. Usually we're going consecutively, kind of paragraph by paragraph or thought by thought through a book and not looking at the whole book all at once. Well, this will be a little bit different. We're going to be skimming over Job at a high level. We're going to survey it, which means we're not going to be able to stop at every destination we want to stop at. This will be more like uh, if you've driven through one of the primary roads on a national park, uh, this will be like that. You'll drive along this main road. There will be many vistas with uh, arresting views that will stop us and make us consider and leave us in awe before the living God. There will also be many trailheads that we'll have to pass by, and and we'll leave that for you, brothers and sisters, to read those trailheads and to explore the book of Job more robustly over the coming weeks. I want to encourage you this morning. That's my heart. My my heart is to, to lift you up, to bind up the brokenhearted, to shore up the faith that is tested. So I pray that the story of Job would help us do that very thing. So first, let's step into the story of Job. Uh, The 42-chapter book divides neatly into four sections, and those four sections will be the four subpoints for uh, this first main heading. Chapters 1 and 2 recount God's glory and Job's suffering, and then chapters 3 through 37 share Job's search for meaning. Uh, And then in chapters 38 to 41, we are told that God the Creator is sovereign over all things, including suffering. And then in chapter 42, we see Job's restoration. So let's walk through each one of those four sections now. Turn with me to Job 1 and 2. Job chapters 1 and 2, where we are introduced to God's glory and then Job's sufferings or Job's sorrows. Uh, The book begins by saying, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. We live in a different age. The idea is he's, he's extraordinarily wealthy. So that this man was the greatest of all the people in the world. And so the stage is set. The main character is a man of impeccable character and extraordinary wealth. Well, now the the scene changes. The camera now shifts to the throne room of heaven. Job 1, verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. 
And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man? So that's the Lord's assessment of Job. He was a blameless and an upright man. Job's only mentioned by name one other time in the Old Testament, and it is to draw attention to his uprightness, his blamelessness. But then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of all that he has, and, and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and, and just touch him. Touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now we see the main plot line of the book. Uh, The main character is, in fact, God and not Job. And the main issue is God's glory being questioned by Satan and not Job's circumstances. Satan's basic challenge to God is, are you actually an infinitely worthy being of worship from your creatures in and of yourself? Or... Do your creatures only worship you because of the things that you do for them, because of the blessings that you pour out on them? That is is the assertion of Satan against the character and the glory of God. Job's entire story is a subplot to display that God is actually worthy of all of our worship in and of himself. If you want a main idea for the book of Job, And a main idea uh, for an overview sermon like this, that's it. The entire story of Job is all to prop up God as being infinitely worthy of all of our worship and sufficient in all of life, no matter what our circumstances, brothers and sisters. Well, the scene now shifts back to Job. The leash has been extended and he is about to afflict afflict Job. Uh, Job 1, verse 13, now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell down from heaven and burned up the sheep and your servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. 
and I alone have escaped to tell you. Can you imagine the horror of receiving these heart-piercing, gut-wrenching, life-altering messages one after the other after the other? You can understand why Job says in Job 9.18, he will not let me get my breath. Do you feel in your suffering that every time you try to come up for air, you're just pushed back down underneath? It's common for us to feel that. It's suffocating. Sometimes it seems like there's no end. Just again and again, the waves of suffering keep crashing over us. Well, Job is drowning in sorrows greater than any of us individually have ever experienced. In one day, he loses all of his possessions, all of his children, and then his health is wrecked to the point where he's even unrecognizable by his friends when they show up. And what he doesn't lose then becomes a thorn in his side to add to his affliction, namely his wife and his friends. But how does Job respond to all of this suffering? Look in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In chapter 2, his wife, his one remaining family member, becomes a thorn in his side and a temptation to them. After Satan had attacked his health, Job 2, 9 and 10 tells us, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Then Job's three friends come and sit silent with him for seven days. And this is honestly Job's friends at their best, not speaking a word, simply being present and weeping with those who weep. And then they open their mouths. And with their words, they quickly prove to be the most unhelpful friends to have next to you in a time of suffering. So that brings us to the next main section of the book, Job chapters 3 to 37. This entire section shares conversations between Job and his friends as they search for the meaning of Job's suffering. And I want us to see two things from this section. A first is that Job's friends prove themselves to be miserable comforters. Job 16.2 says, and worthless physicians, Job 13.4. See, Job's friends end up being another source of sorrow rather than a help to him in the midst of his sorrow. Job 21.34, Job says, how then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Have you ever felt the sting of empty words in the midst of your suffering? It's painful. You know it. 
There's, there's suffering gives us a clarity. It wipes the fog from the lenses of our view of life. It helps us to see things more clearly sometimes. And we can call bogus when we're given empty words in the midst of our suffering. We should be careful that what we say to others in their time of suffering is true, timely, and tinctured with love. Well, Job's friends didn't do that. But what was so wrong about the advice that Job's friends gave him? Well, if you read the book, you'll see that they they acknowledge many of the same things to be true about God that we would acknowledge to be true in this room. Uh, He is a big God who has infinite power over all creation. True. He is blazingly pure in his holiness, and he cannot abide the presence of unholiness or impurity in his pure presence. Also true. And these are two truths that Job's friends will harp on again and again throughout the book. What they get wrong is that they have a rigid retribution theology. So in Job 4.8, Eliphaz says, and this same idea is repeated constantly by each and every one of the friends throughout the book. Job 4.8, Eliphaz says, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble will reap the same. This idea of sowing and reaping is generally true. The Lord himself will use it as an analogy in his teachings. It's a generally true analogy, but if you press it rigidly, or make it time-bound, saying you always reap what you sow and you will always immediately or soon reap what you sow is wrong. You will always get what you deserve. If you are experiencing suffering, well, that's directly related to some actual sin present in your life. Wrong. It is not necessarily so. Sometimes we do experience suffering as a direct consequence for sin in our lives. But sometimes we see the wicked go on unpunished while the righteous suffer seemingly without cause. We will also suffer so that God's power will have a peculiar opportunity to be displayed in our lives. And so that we might find our sufficiency in him. John 9, 2 and 3 tells the story of a blind man. And Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. How that ought to give us perspective when we are in the midst of suffering. The second thing that we ought to notice in this section is Job's persevering faith and his moments of sinful weakness. Job's persevering faith and his moments of sinful weakness. See, Job is mentioned by name only one time in the New Testament, and it's actually to hold him up as as an example in enduring or persevering trust in the Lord. And that's in James 5.11. See, Job's faith in God persevered through the avalanche of sorrows, the wave after wave of sorrows that kept crashing over him. And we see uh, his faith displayed in the fact that he refused to curse God and instead blessed God. How counter to the reflex of our flesh when we are experiencing suffering in the flesh. 
He did not curse, but instead blessed. We also see uh, his faith in some of the statements that he made, like Job 13 15, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Job 19, 25, 26, for I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. And at the end of the book, the Lord condemns Job's friends for saying what was untrue about the Lord. But then of Job, he says, Job has spoken of me what was true. Job remains steadfast and faithful to the Lord. But that does not mean that Job was without sin entirely. Job sinned by having moments of faithless despair. Job 7.7, my eye will never again see good. Most significantly and most importantly, Job's primary sin was to find fault with God in the midst of his suffering. He wrongly questioned God's justice. In Job 9.17, he said, For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. My friends, be careful before you accuse the all-wise creator of doing anything without cause. Job 9.23, Job said, When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. My friends, the God of the Bible does not mock at the calamity of the innocent. Our moments of suffering are like a, a great pressure cooker. And we will find ourselves venting and saying things in a moment that we would not otherwise say. Job's a complex man. He is saying so many things that are true of the Lord. But then he has these moments of despair, these moments of questioning the character, the integrity, the trustworthiness, the justice of God. We ought to be on guard, brothers and sisters, against that very same temptation when we are in the middle of suffering. The things that are true of God outside of suffering must be just as true of God on the inside of suffering for God to remain God. When the, the clouds of suffering press in on you, remember what is true of God outside of suffering and hold fast to that. Hold fast to the steady anchor of God's unchanging character in the midst of your suffering. What hope would you have without an unchanging God? Well, let's move on now and look at the next section, chapters 38 to 41. After 37 chapters of silence, finally, God breaks onto the scene and speaks with Job. How many of you have experienced those prolonged seasons where it seems like God's just not there? He's silent. Some of you are in the doldrums of divine silence in your heartaches right now. I want to call you and encourage you right now to remember that God has spoken and I want you to hear and be encouraged by the words that he spoke to another man in the midst of his suffering. For 37 chapters, Job has been desperate for God to show up and help him understand why all these tragedies are happening to me. How many simmering questions must Job have had? He had to have been bursting with questions. How many questions do you have for God? 
as he, in his all-wise counsel, has providentially ordered affairs in your life that if you were in the driver's seat, you never would have made that decision. You never would have chosen that set of circumstances. Well, God shows up with Job to, to do exactly, Job thinks, what he wants. But Job has something coming for him. Things do not go at all as Job had anticipated. Instead of showing up and really answering his questions in any kind of clear way, God instead does two things. He rebukes Job, and then he calls Job to think about his divine nature, his sovereign majesty over the created universe in particular, and not just his sovereign majesty over all of physical creation, but all of the events that happen in creation. He even in this section identifies particular things that happen, things that transcend our control as humans. The Lord is in control of even these individual events. Therefore, surely he's in control of this one man's sufferings. But that still leaves the question, why did God rebuke Job? We'd already alluded to this. God had himself identified Job as a truly righteous man. But that does not mean Job was without sin. But what was Job's sin exactly? If you look at Job 40 verse 2, I think we have the nub of it. God says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who answers God, let him answer it. The Lord identified Job as finding fault with him. Job spoke many words over the course of the book. He even says, I'm going to let my tongue run free. It's dangerous territory. And he did find fault with God at moments in time, and the Lord calls him to account for that right now. And the Spirit of God inspired this rebuke of Job to stand here as a warning for us not to find fault with God in the midst of our sufferings. Brothers, let us, sisters, let us be on guard against that. But, but why in the world did God choose to uh, then move on just to respond to, God's, uh, to Job's sufferings by talking about his sovereign power uh, over all creation? Uh, the, the speeches of God in Job 38 to 1 are glorious. I think they're, they're a section that we gravitate to because of the way that God talks about his omnipotence, his control, uh, his precise fine-tuning control even over all creator, his big, large-scale control over significant events in the cosmos. Why is he talking about all of that kind of stuff? Well, I think chapters 38 to 41 and all God's speeches to Job there should be seen as one giant argument from the greater to the lesser, saying, if I, the Lord, can control all of these things on this scale... Job, do you think I cannot control one man's circumstances? Do you think anything that's happening to you is outside of my sovereign hand? Job 38, 1 to 7 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. 
What a horrible thing, what a terrifying thing to be under the divine sarcasm of the Creator to expose your wrongdoing. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or chapter 38, verses 8 and 11, or who shut in the sea with its doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. In Job 38, 31 to 33, he calls Job's to look up at the stars. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the corns of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? Or verse 35, can you send forth lightnings that, that they may go and say to you, here we are. What kind of God is the God of Job? What kind of God is your God, my friends? He is a God who is transcendent over all things. He tells the lightning to strike with its five billion joules of energy, and it says, here I am. He sets the limits for the oceans and says, thus far shall you come and no further. The immense hydraulic power of the Niagara Falls, uh, 757,500 gallons flowing over every minute. He controls the trajectory of every single one of those water molecules. With a whispered word, he makes a supernova expand with the power of more than a million suns. At his command, the galaxies appeared in the first place and have hung in a perfect fine-tuned balance that has made us and astrophysicists scratch our heads ever since. Who is the God who is in control over all your sufferings? It is that kind of God. That is the kind of God that I want on the throne over my sufferings. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He is in control, friends, and that is good news for us in suffering. Well, how did Job respond to this Encounter with the transcendent glory of God, and how should we respond? Well, Job was humbled and repented of his sin of finding fault with God. Job 40, verse 3 through 5, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, and I will proceed no further. Job 42, 2-6, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's going to quote the Lord again here. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to you, the Lord says to Job. Job responds, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself. How should we respond 
to God and his transcendent glory, we should humble ourselves and repent and then run to the God who through his son has entered into our sufferings, has suffered for us as a substitute. Well, how does the book end? Chapter 42, we see Job's restoration of the clouds of suffering are finally breaking and the happy ending is here. The Lord does three things in chapter 42. He rebukes Job's friends for saying untrue things about God. And then Job intercedes for his friends, and the Lord averts his wrath from them because Job mediated for them. And then finally, we see the Lord restore a Job. We see him give him family and possessions again. The Lord's blessing is back on him. Job was still, if you notice, never given an answer. He was never told why. We're given no indication that the Lord ever told him about the conversation that was going on in the throne room of heaven between Satan and God. But after all of this, Job would have seen two things at least. The Lord was in control all along. And the Lord had not abandoned his righteous servant. He had not abandoned him. Well, that's the story of Job. Uh, let's move on to our second main point now. Ten lessons from a righteous sufferer. Ten lessons from a righteous sufferer. First, remember that God's glory is the main goal in all things. Our suffering is not chiefly about us. And that is good news if we will embrace that. Second, Remember that God is in sovereign control over all things. And this means that your suffering is not random or meaningless. God only permitted Satan to go so far. He was always on a leash. Friends, do do you realize, have you ever thought about the fact that there has never been a time in history when Satan has not been on a leash? Not once has Satan been off of a leash at what the Lord has allowed him to afflict on you. That's good news. That should be comforting to us. He is on a leash. And then be encouraged that the sovereign Christ who upholds you is the same Christ who Hebrews 1.3 says upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is the Christ we have who is sovereign over all things. That is the Christ that we can go to in the midst of our sufferings. Third, Just because God seems silent or absent in the midst of our suffering does not mean that he is not there. He was always there. He was actually there before Job's suffering had started. He was there throughout. He showed up at the end. We may not have Job's experience of God appearing to us in our lifetime. Oh, but there's something good coming. Fourth, your suffering is not necessarily a result an immediate result of your sin or actions. We do not believe in rigid retribution theology, which holds that all suffering is retribution for specific sins in our lives. Be careful not to stab yourself or to stab somebody else in their suffering with the knife of attributing sin where there is none. Fifth, view your suffering as an opportunity to worship God. 
Oh, how well we would do, brothers and sisters, if we would pre-commit ourselves to leverage our suffering as an opportunity to show to our brothers and sisters for their encouragement and to the lost around us who have no hope that God is all-sufficient. And He is all that we have or need. We have Christ. We have everything. May we be like Job and bless God whether He gives or takes away because we came with nothing into this world and we will leave this world with nothing. We are but dust and to dust we shall return and all that we have comes from God. There's a sub-lesson there too. We develop a sense of entitlement, entitlement with what we have so quickly and it leads us into so much heartache when the cords of our heart become entangled on things. Sixth, Fix your minds and hearts on what is true in the midst of suffering and guard against untrue thoughts about God. So fix your mind and hearts on what is true and push away all that is untrue. Let the unchanging character of Christ be your anchor in the fury of the storm. Think of the sovereign power of the, entire, the, sovereign power of the creator over the entire created world. That's the big message of Job 38 to 41. Think of his infinite wisdom that guides every decision that he makes. Think of his humility and willingness to come and identify with us in our sinful mess and all the sufferings that it brings. Think of his compassion toward us in our frailty. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering flick he will not snuff out. Think of his past acts of faithfulness in your life or in redemptive history. And in the moment of suffering, maybe it'd be a good exercise to pull out a pen and paper and just try to write down three, four, or five ways that God has proven himself faithful even in the midst of suffering. Also, guard against untrue thoughts about God. Be careful not to accuse God of wrongdoing in your suffering. Be especially cautious about making hasty conclusions as to what caused suffering. And do not promise comfort that you cannot affect or make happen in the lives of someone else. Seventh, suffering is often God's chosen means of accelerating our sanctification. And I'll just uh, give you the references and not read Romans 5, 3 to 4. And James 1, 2 to 4. Romans 5, 3 to 4. James 1, 2 to 4. Eighth, find hope by looking forward to the final resurrection day when Christ will come and eradicate all suffering from the world. Unless Christ returns in our lifetime, every one of us will draw our final breath. Every one of us will go through the suffering of death. Every heart in this room will stop beating If you are Christ, what's on the other side is so good. It is so sweet. There's a day coming when Christ is going to show up again and fulfill Revelations 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, Job found hope and comfort in the thought of the resurrection. He anticipated this day, the 
though after his, his flesh would go away, yet in his, after his skin would go away, in his flesh he would see God. He would see his Redeemer. Well, we, by a comparison in our place in redemptive history, surely have a better understanding than Job. We have more knowledge. We have more displays of the grace of God shown to us, the human race, and our sinful humanity. We have the eternal Son of God who has inserted himself into the created world at a point in history. History witnessed his death and resurrection from the dead and victory over death and over Satan. We have that. We also, secondly, we have the completed scriptures. We have a fully worked out theology of the resurrection of the dead. Job saw dimly. We see more clearly with the greater revelation that we have. Be encouraged. If you are in suffering, frequent yourself with the word of God. Go to key resurrection texts like John 11 where Jesus says he is the resurrection and the life. 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, Romans 6, 1 Thessalonians 4 and the whole book of revelations, honestly. We should have even greater confidence than Job. We have seen more of Christ and we have his word. Ninth, eternal suffering is a far worse reality than present suffering. Remember that whatever suffering we experience now is less than we deserve for rebelling against a perfectly holy and pure God who the only just instinct of a perfectly pure being is to have a reaction against all that is unclean or impure. We justly deserve that righteous reaction of God against us in our sin. And yet, He has forgiven us through Christ. He has extended grace to those who did not deserve it. The reality is that every day we are not in hell is a gift of God's grace and a demonstration of His kindness and patience and forbearance that Romans 2, 4, and 5 says is meant to lead us to repentance. In Job eleven six, 6, Zophar says to Job, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. So Zophar actually misapplied that to the immediate circumstances of Job's life. It wasn't because of Job's guilt that any of this was happening. But the larger principle still holds true. God exacts of us less than our guilt deserves as long as we're here and we draw breath. Some of you are outside of Christ. You've never acknowledged him to be your creator. You've never put your faith, your whole soul dependence and trust in him to be your only hope to save you and to give you eternal life beyond the grave that we're all headed for. Job's life should serve as a a warning, a clarion call for you to consider eternity to consider this great and awesome and holy God and yet this wonderful and gracious and merciful God. If you were to come to him today, humbling yourself like Job, repenting and putting your faith in his righteous son, then you would have eternal life. Tenth, as new covenant believers, our primary hope in the midst of suffering is an even more righteous man who endured an even greater suffering. 
So I want to be careful here. The New Testament never explicitly draws a bold line between Job and Jesus, Job as a type of Jesus. So I want to be careful not to do that either. What I'm simply going to do is just zoom out from Job's point in history. We're going to fast forward down the timeline of redemptive history, and we're going to see the greater revelation that God has sent to us in his son. Job saw his need for a mediator between him and God. Take comfort that we have in Christ our great high priest and the mediator who has done away with our sins. Jesus took on flesh and blood. At last, the Redeemer did stand upon the earth. Jesus took on flesh and blood to identify with us in our weaknesses and yet never sinned. He endured the worst kind of human torture, execution, and brutal death. And more than that, he experienced what none of us have experienced or could experience, the almighty and eternal wrath of God against all of humanity's sin poured out on one man. That is what Christ endured for us. Then he rose from the dead, securing victory over death and over Satan and over sin. That is the greater righteous man. That is the greater sufferer. We would be madmen if we just looked at the story of Job and thought, well, we need to be like Job. Job is held out for us as an example. James does that for us. We ought to look at Job. Oh, my friends, if we don't look beyond Job, though, through Job, and see Christ, the truly righteous man, suffering for sinners like us, that is all our hope. And in the midst of suffering, of your suffering, I want to encourage you to find hope in Christ who has suffered for you. And remember that the glory is in front of us. It is to be revealed on the last day. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Please pray with me. Lord, from sorrows deep we call in our desperation. Oh, for how long we've pled and prayed, God, come to our rescue. Thank you that you have heard our call and that you have come to our rescue in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would have mercy on Amber, on James and the boys even now. But we thank you that because she is Christ, to die is gain. Job's friends actually faced nearly the greatest suffering. If Job had not mediated for them and God had not averted his wrath from them, their suffering would have been far worse. To be with you would be gain. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are done with this world. We are wearied by the effects of our sin, of general sin around us, of this creation that's groaning in the pangs of childbirth. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Oh, but please draw so many more into Christ so that they may need never experience eternal suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Want to